Well, Ezra chapter 8, uh, we are getting close to the end. In fact, next Sunday will be the last sermon in the Ezra uh, portion of this sermon series, and then we'll jump into Nehemiah. Uh, you may or may not know this, but Ezra and Nehemiah, although separate books in your Bible, in the original, were one book. Uh, they're both written by, we believe, written by Ezra himself. Uh, and they're telling sort of two uh, two angles of, of really the same event, which again is the return of the exiles. Uh, God's people had been exiled into uh, Babylon. Uh, we're talking like in the 500s BC, right? And, uh, and 70 years later, they were able by God's mercy and by His decree, through the king of, of Persia's decree, to be able to come back. And so these are, this is the story of them coming back. Uh, and as we've looked into these last eight, seven chapters, we've seen so far that there was a, a first return of exiles. Several thousand people uh, came back in that first wave of exiles. Uh, this was around 537 BC. And then as we've, as we got into chapter seven last week, we saw that about 80 years after that, a second wave of people came back. A smaller group of people, more like 5,000 people came back this time. Uh, and the and the purpose of their return was to go back ultimately to be able to restore right worship with God. They they were being sent back into Jerusalem, which had been sacked, which had been burned. The temple had been destroyed, and they're now they're rebuilding these things, uh, not just to rebuild their city and to go home, but ultimately to be back with the Lord, uh, to be able to worship God in the way that God had had prescribed for them to, to be in their presence with them. Uh, so it's a significant thing. Uh, and last week we saw in chapter 7, that second wave, uh, we were told of their return and how that came about. Chapter 8 is a bit of a bridge. Uh, it kind of gives the details of that return. Kind of the who, how, when, where, why of the return. Uh, and it's, it's really leading us into the significant portion of that story, which comes next week when we get to chapters 9 and 10. Um, so I kind of wrestled with chapter 8 a little bit, knowing that it was a bit of a bridge passage. There's, there's some good stuff in there, but, but it, it sort of anticipates what comes next. Next, By the way, just, just by way of uh, encouragement and warning, <laughs> next week is going to be significant. Uh, it's powerful what happens next week. Because next week we're going to see a picture of repentance that will rock your world. All right. And so chapter eight is sort of a preparation for that. It's just God moving his people into that place to bring about that work of revival in them. Um, so we could have looked at chapter eight and saw uh, just really the preparation for that. But I thought, you know what, next week I'll cover kind of what that means, how chapter eight fits into that preparation for the big revival. Uh, but instead, today, I'm, I'm going to do something that I don't do uh, overtly uh, often, which is just kind of give a, a bit of a, a pragmatic sermon. Uh, because there's some principles in this chapter that I think will help you. I've titled the sermon, Making Godly Decisions. Uh, because there's some big decisions that are being made here. There's some significant administration happening here in chapter 8. And we can learn a little something from Ezra and the way that he goes about that that I, I hope and pray will be an encouragement to you as you consider how do you make decisions and, and really considering the will of God. How do you make decisions in light of God's will? How do you discern it? 
How do you know if you're making good decisions, right decisions? Uh, and, I, and that's what we're going to focus on a bit today. So a bit of a, tra- a pragmatic transition before we get to the real gut puncher of next Sunday, okay? Um, again, chapter 8 is a, is a narrative about the, a four-month journey, all right? The second wave, we talked about them last week going, being sent back to Jerusalem, but we, we get to chapter 8 and we're kind of, we're kind of reversing back a little bit. They're still in Babylon at this point. They're still in Persia, which it is now. Babylon has been conquered by Persia. Um, and we're kind of hearing how the, the whole thing got put together for this big move. So if we pick up in chapter 8, uh, let me do this. I'm going to pick up in, in verse 15 of chapter 8. And I'll tell you that the first 14 verses are, a, are just a genealogy, if you will. Not a genealogy, but a record, I should say, of the people who went. All right, you get, we get a, a sense of who these 5,000 people are, uh, and it's really a long list of names, which uh, you're welcome to read after church on your own time. I'm going to, for the sake of time, move into verse 15. Ezra says this, he says, I gathered them, verse 15, to the river that runs to Ahava. And there we camped three days. And I reviewed the people and the priests. I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan. By the way, there's a lot of Nathans. It's not a, it's just a, lot, a common name, all right? Uh, Zechariah and Meshulam, leading men. And for Jerib and Elnathan, another one, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Casaphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place, Casaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen. 18. Also, Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshashiah, the sons of Merare, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides, 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. Now stop there and look up. I know that was, again, a bit of a confusing list of some names, but the gist was is as Ezra gathers the people together, 5,000 of them or so show up to this gathering point by this river, and they're about ready to set off on the journey. He looks out and he realizes, we don't have any Levites. And I'll explain a little bit later why that was important. But the, the rest of those verses was about him saying, all right, we need to send some guys to go get some Levites. And they go and they pick up some. Okay, that's what happened there. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them, and I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel, their present, had offered. Again, stop there. Remember last week 
when the decree was made for the second wave to go back, the king of Persia said to them, there's more gold and silver and, and objects of worship that didn't go back the first time. Take them with you. So this is the, this is that, you know, that loot. Uh, although I don't know if that's the right word, but it's, it's a lot of wealth. Uh, but it's these objects of worship. And, uh, and so they're weighing them out. Verse 26, I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of, of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the vessels are holy and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. He's speaking this, by the way, to these Levites. Guard them. And keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem and to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold of the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binuai. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded." At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Alright? So I, I told you, it's kind of like a who, where, what, when, why, and how of this move, this big journey that they took. All right? We got names of people who went. We got a description of the stuff that they took with them. And a little bit of a description of kind of the, the, the travel. Uh, it was safe travel, what happened when they got there. Right? I think the key, though, that we're going to focus in on is that moment of prayer and fasting. All right? Before we dive into that, let me, let me just try to bring a little bit of this closer to home for you. Uh, anybody made a long distance move sometime in your life? I have. If you have done that, this is something you might know. There's lots of decisions to be made, right? Anytime we move, you go from one place to another and you're packing up all your things, it, there's a lot of decisions to be made. Just compounded by the length of the journey, uh, the amount of stuff that you need to take, right? Lots of things that need to be decided. And if you're planning those details with somebody else, Maybe it's a spouse or somebody who's got a significant partnership with you in that move. You know that there can be sometimes some major differences in the way that you go about the planning, right? When my wife and I had our last move, and we've moved a few times, but the last one was significant. We moved across country. Uh, I remember very specifically how we, we struggled to come up with a uh, cohesive way of going about packing up all the things in our house and putting them into the moving truck. For her, it was, you know, she's a planner, right? So it was lists. 
It was, you know, categories and, and catalogs of things and, and boxes had color-coded dots on them and everything was labeled and, and everything just had to be so, so that there was a sense of organization for her. And without that, it was very stressful because she was thinking, where will I find everything? And when we get on the other side, how will we know what boxes are to go and what rooms or what's to go to the basement and all that, right? That was the way that she went about that. And for me, I'm much less concerned about details. My thought was, look, if we start with a full house, and an empty truck, and we end up with a full truck and an empty house, we got it all. We're good. <laughs> I say that to you, and I'm guessing that some of you out there are going, that sounds really familiar, right? Very different ways about going about these kinds of things. And, and here's the thing. Those, those differences uh, really often point to bigger, more significant differences uh, in more significant decisions that are made in life. Uh, so I, I, and I use my wife and, and I as an example. We're, we're very different kinds of people. She is a planner. So for her, there's, a, there's, a, there's an emphasis on reasoning things out, on logic, on accounting, on, you know, like sort of counting up on your fingers and toes, like all of the things that you have to take care of and making lists. And for me, uh, again, not being a detail guy, uh, it's not just that I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a detail guy, but I, I think for me, I tend to operate a little bit more on the faith end of things, right? So she's kind of a, a logic and reason type. Doesn't mean she's faithless at all. Uh, and to say that I'm faithful in that regard doesn't mean I don't use reason, but, but those are, th- there's a difference in the way that we approach that. And I think that's a difference that can be seen in lots of different people. Many of you fall into the, I like to th- reason things through logic. I'm a practical thinker. And some of you are kind of like, I'm all about just going by faith, right? God will work it out. Let's just go. And that is something that we're going to see happening here in the text. A contrast, those two different kinds of people. And the question that, that we're, we're, we're going to want to ask up front is, well, which is better? And the reality is we're not going to get an answer for that. We're going to see both validated, just kind of stretching one another into how we ought to be uh, approaching our decisions. Is it, it For those of us that like to just kind of go by faith, is there something that you can learn from those who are a little bit more reasonable, practical, and organized that God might want to teach you about how to make decisions and vice versa? Can you, practical, logical, organized person, maybe learn a little bit about faith and trusting the Lord with the unknown uh, and that's what we'll see here as we take a look at two different kinds of people. Uh, here's the two different people we're going to look at. Ezra is a guy who generally operates by faith. Look down again at the text in verse 21 and 23. Through 23, I should say. So he's got to make this big journey, right? And he says this, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all of our goods. And this is a key thing. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek Him, and the power of His wrath is against all who forsake Him. So we fasted. And we implored our God for this, and He listened to our entreaty. Now, here's what, what He's saying. He's saying, look, I didn't want to ask for an escort. We're about to take this journey, 
right? And I didn't want to ask for an escort because I was ashamed. I just got done telling the king, hey, the Lord is with us. It would be a little weird if I had said to him, oh, by the way, can you send us an army? All right. Now, flip over just a, a few pages to Nehemiah chapter 2. It's probably three or four pages over to the right. Nehemiah is a contemporary of Ezra. Nehemiah has also uh, been told by the king to go back. Same kind of situation, right? Just two different guys uh, with a similar situation. And, and here's what Nehemiah's experience was. Look down at chapter 2, verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. That, 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 so far, that's like exactly the same thing Ezra's done, right? He prays. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. All right, now that's all very much the same kind of situation that Ezra found himself in. Except, we get over to, and I forgot to write it down. Hang on, i got to find it. See, I'm not a detail guy. <laughs> oh man, where'd it go? Here's the point. I'll find it. Verse 9? Thank you. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters... Now the king, oh, here we go. See, it was on a two-page thing. That's where I missed it. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So here we have Nehemiah who's saying, I prayed. I asked the Lord. The king was going to send me back and we're going to go on this journey. And unlike Ezra who said, I can't ask for an army. I just got done telling the king that the good hand of the Lord was upon us. Here you got Nehemiah saying, the good hand of the Lord was upon us, and I took the army. <laughs> so again, which is better? Which is more faithful? Well, here's the bigger question. Because again, we're not going to get an answer to that. But here's the bigger question. What's the balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in the Christian life? You probably ask that question regularly, right? What point do I just say, trust God and don't worry about it? And what point do I say, no, I've got some means, I'm going to work with them, and I'm still trusting God? What's the balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in the Christian life? So we're going to look back now to Ezra chapter 8 and try to get a sense of Ezra's processes for making decisions by faith. And there's four principles here that I want us to look at. And I hope by the end of this, if anything, you just get a little sense of freedom. And how do you go about deciding what to do in life and discerning God's will 
as you make significant decisions, all right? So Ezra's processes for making decisions by faith. Here's the first one. Here's the first one. Faithful dependence on God in prayer and fasting, okay? Faithful dependence on God in prayer and fasting. We go back to to chapter 8, verse 21. I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God. Verse 23, uh, he continues on that track. Man, my eyes must be bad this morning. So sorry, everybody. I'm looking at it, but it's blurry. Verse 23, where does it begin? My goodness. Oh, there we go. So we fasted. Sorry about that. And implored our God for this, for he listened to our entreaty. I, I, by the way, I specifically just went out and bought a large print Bible because my eyes have been giving me trouble up here, and apparently it's not good enough. I need glasses too. Um, he declares a fast, right? They're, they're seeking the Lord. So here's the principle. Here's the practical principle. Always pray up your decisions. Always pray up your decisions and do it first before you do anything else. Let's consider what the questions were at hand here for Ezra. What decisions needed to be made? And you think about it, it's significant. He's about to undertake a massive movement of people and goods over a 900-mile stretch of land. So the distance from the river Ahava back to Jerusalem is significant. It's about the distance, if you were to you think in sort of modern American terms, of Chicago to Boston or Chicago to uh, Houston or Denver or Jacksonville, depending on whatever part you're from and how you think about that, right? And you're making that journey by foot and by mule train. And in the ancient world, we're not talking about highway systems and you know rest areas along the way and state patrol officers that are available when you need them. You're just going over uh, a, a vast uh, you know wasteland, if you will, that makes you very susceptible to thieves, to raiders, right, to danger. So he's got to move a group of people that's about 5,000 people, including men, women, and children, plus whatever possessions they're bringing with them, plus all of this gold and silver and these objects of worship that they're going back with. So, so just to say it very simply, they've got a ton of wealth, a ton. And they're about to go across this very dangerous uh, land on a very j- dangerous journey. This is not a light thing to undertake. So what's his first move? His first move is to say, you know, we need to stop and we need to have a concentrated time of prayer and fasting to trust God to lead us here. We've talked a bit about prayer through this series already. I'll just remind you what, what prayer is, how we define that. It's, it's dependence on the Lord, right? It's saying, look, Lord, you are sovereign. You are in control. You hold everything in your hand and we are wholly dependent upon you. Any step we make that's not undergirded by you is a step of folly. Right? So prayer is just that, that crying. God, you have to direct this. Now the emphasis here though is, is more so on the fasting part. We haven't talked much about fasting. Uh, what is fasting and what's the purpose of fasting? Well, most of us think of fasting as denying ourselves food. Right? And that's probably the most common type of fasting that occurs. But what, why do you do that? Why would we do that? That seems like a, a sort of a weird and barbaric even thing to do. Just deny food. Well, you're, it's a declaration. If you think about what food is to you, 
Food is something that you need, right? You need it. In fact, you need it so much that you're driven to it daily, right? Your stomach begins to rumble when you know that, that man, I mean, right now, many of you are thinking, it's a quarter to 12 already, Bill. <laughs> food, food is out there, Bill, right? We're driven by that, right? So, so the idea is to say to God in fasting, uh, A, I want to be driven to you in the same way that I'm driven to my, my physical needs. But, but more importantly, I want to declare to you, God, that, that you are more important to me than those desires and those needs. Right? So here's what Ezra's doing. People, we need, to, we need to declare to God, he's the most important and desirable and necessary thing for us right now as we're making this move. And this was his first place. This was his starting place. And it's really about priorities. So I want to ask us that as a, as a way of application. Where do you run to first? When, when significant things are set before you, when decisions need to be made, and, and, and not just when you move, but I mean significant things that may occur. What, you have a major health care decision that needs to be made. You've been, you've given, been given news, and, and you've, got, you've got to think through, what are my options here? Where do you run to first? When your finances are an issue in front of you, I've, I've got a, a massive financial decision to make. I don't have the resources for this, or I have lots of resources and I don't know what to do with them. How would God have me uh, use, utilize these for his glory? What's the first thing that you do? Who do you ask first? Do you seek your doctor first? Do you seek your attorney first? Do you seek your financial advisor first? Do you go and ask your friends? Well, those, are, those are good things to do. In fact, I would say they're important things to do, but none of them should be the first thing to do. And that's the, that's the model that we're given here from Ezra. It's about acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Anybody else I can go to, including myself, in thinking through these decisions, is coming at this with at least some kind of blindness. Because we can't see beyond our noses. We can't see the future. We can anticipate it. But God knows it, and God knows his plan for us, and he knows his will, and he knows our best. And so we see Ezra going first and foremost. It's an interesting thing. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 16 is an interesting, uh, there's an interesting verse in there, verse 12. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, this was uh, King Asa, and it says this. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet. He had gout or something. And his disease became very severe, it says there. And then it gives this as a, a bit of a rebuke against him. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but he sought help from physicians. Let me ask you something. Is God against asking help from physicians? Not at all, right? Don't, don't walk away with that message here at all. Physicians are a gift from God, right? Medicine is a gift from God. You should talk to your doctor if you're having some health issues, right? But the, there's, a, there's a charge laid against Asa here, not for going to his doctor, but for going to his doctor first. He didn't seek the Lord. And so we can learn something from that. And that's what Ezra does as a first practice. Number two, after seeking the Lord, we see faithful stewardship and use of what God provides. Faithful stewardship and use of what God provides. Here's the principle. 
recognize that God often works through human agency. He works through planning. He works through strategy. He works through plain old hard work. Okay? Human hard work. So recognize that and be faithful in stewarding and using what God has given. Ezra might have been a spiritual guy. Right? When we compare him to Nehemiah, he's the guy that made the faith call, right? Might have been a spiritual guy, but he was not a, he, it doesn't mean he wasn't a practical one. He was. It just took on a different form for him. Look at how he used available means to aid his decision making. If you look back at verse 15, trust my eyes to be able to find it this time. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days as I reviewed the people and the priests, and I found there none of the sons of Levi. Remember, we talked about that. He looks around, he sees there's, there's no Levites there. Uh, what does that mean? Okay, well, this was a significant problem because the, the Levites were the ones who were in charge of the service in the temple. So if you're going to go back to Jerusalem and you're going to bring back all these people and all these objects of worship, you need to be able to get there and execute that worship properly. And if you don't have any Levites, there's no servants in the temple. Uh, we talked about the priesthood uh, from the line of Aaron, right? They were Levites, all right? They were a segment of the Levites. So, so the priests came out of that tribe, but also then the rest of the Levites, those who weren't in Aaron's line, their job was to support the priesthood. So they were doing the, you know, kind of all the work, all of the, all the necessary preparations and carrying out of functions for the temple worship to be able to operate properly. So if you don't have those guys, you're in trouble. That's first, that's the first problem. The second thing is because they were responsible for the articles and the objects of the worship, all this gold, all this silver, all this stuff that they were taking back had to be handled by them. So if they didn't have Levites, they had all this stuff and they, they're basically like, we don't know how to touch it. We can't guard it. We can't do anything with it. That's the Levite's job. So they got to do something. So what does he do? Well, verses 16 and 17 says he sends a couple of, of, uh, of the leaders and he says, look, I know where we can find some Levites. There's this guy, Edo. Over in this place, it was Casaphia, and we don't know much about what that was. Was it a, was it a town? Was it a, a school? I don't know what it was. It's like a seminary. But, but he says, I, 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 there's this guy, Edo. He's over there. He's got Levites. Go over there. And essentially what we see happening is some, some arm twisting. Guys, get on the bus. We need you. Right? There was probably reasons for these Levites not to go back. In fact, there were some good reasons for it. In terms of it, on a human perspective, I mean, they were going back to something that was really hard. You got to go to, back to Jerusalem. You got to go back to this temple. Things are still ruined. Things are still burned out. This is a lot of grunt work. They probably had a comfortable existence. If, if they didn't, they probably would have wanted to go in the first place. Why didn't they want to leave? They probably had a comfortable existence. And yet they're saying, no, get on the bus, right? I'm going to send some guys to go get you. I'm going to send the right kind of people to go get you, and I'm going to make this happen. That's what Ezra does. That's the first thing we see here. Second thing we see here begins in verse 24. I set apart 12 of the leading priests, and we weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, right? What was that all about? Why, why this whole explanation of the weighing out and the counting up of all this stuff? Well, there's a couple of good reasons for that. When you account for what you've got, it ensures some accountability, right? It ensures some integrity. There's a record of what you have. So when you leave point A and you get to point B, somebody can look and say, 
Yep, it's all here. You guys didn't take it on the way. You didn't spend it on the way. A jack-in-the-box, you know, the halfway point, right? You were faithful. And he makes uh, an effort here to be a good steward of what God has given to him, not just in the stuff, but in the means to account for it and to care for it. And then we get over to verse 29. And he says to the Levites, guard them, keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's houses at Jerusalem. So here's what he's doing here. He's saying, look, we may not have asked Artaxerxes the king to give us an army, but God gave us Levites. So guard the stuff, right? He didn't ask for provision from the king. He knew he had a provision from God if God provided the Levites, and so he trusted in the provision that God gave him, and he put them to work, right? Guard the goods. So here's the question. Did Ezra simply just walk by faith? Oh, it'll all work out. Let's just go. Let's just go. No, he used human means as well by faith. By faith. Look again at verse 18 just to highlight that. Verse 18. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us this man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, the son of Israel. So he's saying, he's saying, I went and got these guys, but God did it. Because God's hand was on us. My effort to go send for these Levites bore fruit because God's hand was on us. He did something by faith. So I think this is a good lesson for the sort of spiritual, not so logical, reasonable, practical people among us, right? Working by faith doesn't negate the need to use the things that God has given to you and work by human means when available. That's what Ezra does here. However, if you practical, logical types are feeling really vindicated right now, here's a stretching principle for you. Number three, Ezra also employed faithful trust in God's power to work apart from our means. Faithful trust in God's power to work apart from our means. Here's the practical principle. Sometimes we need to turn down available means and trust God to work apart from them. Trust God to work apart from them, even though they're right in front of you. If we look back at verses 21 to 23 again, again, we see this, this, uh, this we're going to pray, we're going to ask the Lord for this, and he says in verse 22, because I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers. I was ashamed. That's an interesting word for him to use. Why was he ashamed? Again, because he had already told the king, God has us. So to go back and to ask for help for Ezra in this situation would have been a shameful thing. He was... There was a fear about that. There was a timidity in him to go back to the king and ask for that after he'd already said, God's got our backs. Why? I don't think the timidity or fear was of Artaxerxes, but I think it was because he had staked God's name on their position. Right? God will take care of us. So his shame wouldn't be that I go in front of Artaxerxes and ask for help. His shame would be that I might somehow lessen the name and the power of my God after I've just said what a, what a name and what a powerful God He is. Right? 
This is a helpful guide for us. How do you know when to just go by faith, to trust God, and sort of reject, not utilize, the human means that are available to you? It's this. It's when doing so would be a poor reflection on the Gospel. When doing so would make other people say, what about your God? What would they say about our God if we didn't walk by faith? If I didn't walk by faith in this instance? I was thinking about Jim Elliott as I was working that principle out of my mind. Jim Elliott, back in the 1950s, was an American uh, missionary young man, uh, married with children, and and he heads off into South America with some buddies, and they're going to go minister to an unreached people group. Uh, not just an unreached people group, but a, a group of people who had been really locked out of any of the modernization of the Western world. This was a, just a kind of a, a primitive tribe of folks who were known for cannibalism, right? And Jim Elliott's heart was, I got to go in there and preach the gospel to these folks. God birthed in him a love for them. And, and, you know, as you could expect, people would say, why would you do that? This is not a smart thing to do. This is not the reasonable that you are a married man. You've got young children. This is dangerous. Just do something else. Just stay here. This doesn't make a lot of sense. And yet he said, I have to. What, you know, what would it say about God if I didn't do that? And it, and it, and it turned out that the logical, reasonable people were right because those tribes folks killed him. But, the testimony of his ministry and his wife after the fact was such so strong to say no. It spoke something about the, the love of God and the risk of Christ to go and do this anyway that we had to. We had to. And that's the, that's the principle here, right? Sometimes it's just, it's, you know, what would it say about God if I, if I utilize these things? I'm just going to go by faith. So we have this sort of, okay, God uses both, doesn't he? Sometimes he uses human means and logic and practical thinking, and sometimes he just says, go by faith and trust me. And we're seeing Ezra employ both. So finally, this, whether you're a practical person or a spiritual person, you ultimately need to believe that God is the one who accomplishes his will. Ask him for guidance in that. And then rest in Him. The fourth thing we see here is faithful praise and thanksgiving for God's hand in everything. And here's the, here's the principle at work. Believe that God provides and that God protects. Always look for His hand in it and give Him glory. However it is that you, you came to work out that decision or accomplish that thing, whether it was I used the means in front of me or whether it was purely by faith or was it, maybe it was a combination of both, see the hand of God in it and give Him glory. Who provided the Levites? Verse 18, he says it was by the good hand of our God. Right? Who provided the safe travel? Verse 22, he says it was by the good hand of our God. I did some stuff. I secured some Levites. We guarded the stuff. We trusted the Lord. We did a little bit of both, but God did it. Who provided the provision of their possessions and their items of worship? Verse 24, verse 31. It was the good hand of God who accomplished it. 
So here's the, I guess here's the lesson for us. For those of us who are, who are uh, struggling with decisions and those of us who are spirit, more spiritual in our approach, those of us who are more practical in our approach and we're wondering how do we, how do we, how do we work all this out? How do we know if God is, 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 is in this thing? Have we done it right? Here's what I take away from Ezra 8. God works in the miraculous and in the mundane. And He's calling us first to trust Him and to trust Him to help us to see how do we go about this? What do we utilize? When do we put our hands up and and say, it's all you, God. When do we work? But trust Him that God is at work in all of it. And he He does His work through miraculous things and He does His work through mundane things. So what does that tell me about decision-making and the will of God? It tells me that we need God. It tells me that we need God's Word. And it also tells me this. We need each other. We need each other. God's goodness to us is given to us and displayed for us in three things. His presence and His love. His direct revelation. And I think in His body of believers... Because some of you are really practical people who would never take a step of faith unless you could see it all worked out on paper. And some of you are so spiritual that you you never stop long enough to actually think that maybe we ought to take some wisdom here and put this on paper. And God has put you together in the body of Christ as a means to say to each other, not hopefully in a fighting way, that my way, no your way, no my way, but hey, God's given me some gifts, God's given you some gifts, let's come before Him and seek Him on this, and let's ask Him to show us which way to go, and how can I help you? I need to help you have a little more faith. I need to help you have a little more fingers and toes, man. But God gives us both. And He gives us Himself, and He gives us His Word, and He gives us the church. So we shouldn't be hasty in our decision-making, but we also shouldn't be crippled by them. Some of you are crippled by decisions. I'm so unsure as how to move forward. I don't know what to do. But God is in control. And if you want evidence of that, look to the cross. We look to the cross, we see God uses human agency. We see God uses faith. And we see God use His sovereign hand to bring about His purposes, don't we? He worked in some miraculous ways through the cross of Christ. He worked in some mundane ones. He used people to accomplish His purposes, but His purposes were being accomplished by His sovereign will and plan. And He was in control of all of that. And the point of all of that, Jesus going to the cross, was to, was to forgive us of our sin, right? It was to break down that barrier between us and God. It was to establish right relationship and worship with a holy God and sinful people again so that in Christ we could have freedom to live in the confidence of God's sovereign love for us even when our decisions aren't perfectly clear or perfectly made. You're going to trust God? You're going to employ some means, maybe. You're going to employ faith, maybe. You're going to do a little both of that, maybe. And at the end of the day, you're going to have to say this, God, I, I'm just offering to you my best according to my, my ability, my, my will, my understanding. Lord, I'm, I'm trusting you for this. I'm asking you to accomplish this. I'm not always sure I'm making the right decision. But even when God's 
or even when our decisions aren't perfectly made, God leads us. And in Christ, we have this confidence. Nothing can separate us from His love. Is that helpful? I hope so. It didn't really answer all those like hard-hitting questions. Well, just give me something to do. Give me something to think. No, trust. we got to trust the Lord. But God has given you plenty to do and think and work through. And ultimately, He's given to us Himself through His Son. And we can trust Him. So, Father, as we take that away today, Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here. I know some of them have some significant things on their minds and on their hearts today. Health issues, family concerns, financial needs, all kinds of things, Lord, that, that only You know. But I pray, Lord, that you'd, you'd help your people to be people who are prayerful, word-focused, Christ-enabled trusters of you. We thank you, Lord, for the means that you give us, the things that you put in front of us, the gifts that we have, the, the possessions that we have, the resources available to us. Lord, help us to be good stewards of those. But help us never to trust wholly in them. Help us to trust You. Help us to walk by faith. Help us to do that in the confidence of the cross of Christ. Our lives have been redeemed by You, Lord, and nothing can separate us from Your love. You want to use us. And Lord, You will use us to accomplish Your things, the, the miraculous and the mundane, if we're walking by faith and we're walking according to the Word of God. So empower your people, empower my friends here today, Lord, as they go about their weeks. Help them, Lord, to pursue you and use us for your glory. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.